Okay, well, we've been looking over the last little while, the last, this is week four, uh, we've been doing ourselves a spiritual health check. We've been working out uh, what some of the signs of spiritual health for us individually, but also for us as a church. What does it mean for us to be healthy? And I've been a pastor long enough to know just how wrong you can get this question or the answer to this question. Uh, It's easy to look at a church and go, well, there's more people here this week than there were last week. Okay, we're a healthy church. We're growing. Okay. It might be, oh, oh, okay, last year we had one full-time staff member. Now we've got two. Okay, we must be a healthy church. We're, We're going well. We've got more staff. We've got more people. There's more money in the budget. There's more ministries happening. And you've got, you know, cool creative Christmas ideas. We must be a healthy church. Yes? Well... Maybe, maybe. We've, we've had a friend who's been uh, walking with us through this exploration. Can anyone remember our friend's name? Jonathan Edwards, there he is. He's there in all his glory. Uh, and uh, he was a pastor back in the 18th century United States at a time known as uh, the First and Second Great Awakenings. Uh, They were times of revival. They were times when lots and lots of people were making uh, public professions of faith. They were coming into the church. Lots of emotion, lots of strange spiritual things were happening. And Jonathan Edwards looked at those things and uh, he asked, are they from God? And uh, this is what he came up with. He called them marks of neutrality. And so he actually went to scripture and went to 1 John And ask this question, what does the Bible promise us are the marks of spiritual health? And we've seen over the last four weeks, and we'll see one more next week. uh, The first week we saw that if uh, Christ is, our devotion to Christ is growing, if the Spirit is commending Jesus to our hearts, uh, that the Christ of Scripture, uh, we love him more, we are serving him more, that's a good thing. Number two, if our hearts are being turned away from the world and to God, that is a sign of spiritual health and spiritual growth. And last week we saw if we are growing in our commitment to know God through his word, that is a sign of spiritual growth. Numbers, that could be from God, but it might not be. It might be that we've just got a cool coffee cup, you know, It might be that uh, every other church can't meet because they don't have a building that can fit 600. So everyone's coming here all of a sudden. There's lots of reasons why we could be growing. Some of them may be from God. So today we're going to look at uh, our fourth category, which is overflowing with love. And there are our four points. Uh, Love commanded, love examined undergoing a spiritual prescriptions of grace, the the same two at the end. First of all, love commanded. Now, you may be familiar with the Beatles song, all you need is love. And I think John, with a few uh, caveats, a few checks and balances, I think John would agree uh, with the Beatles. Uh, he, he, He stretches it out more. He says, you need love, you have to have love. And there are a couple of other things as well. So if, you've, if you're a student of 1 John, you realise that uh, John has three key tests, and we've actually seen them 
over the last couple of weeks. One is a theological test. Do you have the right view of God, particularly the right view of Jesus Christ? That was our first sermon. Okay. The second test is an ethical test. Are you turning away from sin and pursuing God's pattern of life? That was our second week. Okay. And this week, we're looking at John's third test, which is a relational test. Do you love one another? Dear friends, he writes in verse 7 of chapter 4, Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. John here is saying that love is a key indicator for real Christianity. And why? Because it is who God is. You see there at the end of verse 8, God is love. What it doesn't say is love is God. That's important. It says God is love. So it doesn't tell us that the impersonal idea of love is what is divine, but the person of God, he is defined as loving. It is love is from God, love is God, God is love. It's not just something he does, it is everything that shapes, it's something that shapes everything that he does. So when God blesses us, it is motivated by love. When God gives us his word and reveals himself, it's motivated by love. When God judges, it is motivated by love. Love defines, it drives every action of God. And so here John is saying that if we are born of God, if we say we know God, you will see it in love. It's like if you go to the little chemistry labs and you've got those, remember those little litmus papers? And you used to dip it in and it changed colour. And so the acidic ones would go pink. I'm looking at the, the chemistry person. Yes, good. Okay. Uh, chemistry people uh, over there. And so it's like you've got this spiritual litmus paper and you dip it into the church. And if it shows love, okay, you've got one of the key indicators of a real growing church. It is a defining feature, so much that Jesus himself, when he's in the upper room, he tells his disciples this. He says, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Notice that little phrase, we'll come back to it. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He's telling us that love is one of the key defining factors. It's kind of like uh, a family likeness. Uh, if you ever met my brother, see, I don't think I look like my brother. Uh, when people come across my brother separately to me, particularly growing up, they would often mistake us for one another. I'm better looking than he is by far. Um, but you see the family line. Uh, it bears true. You see photographs back, and maybe you can do this in your family, where you find that photograph of your grandfather or your grandmother or aunt, whoever, and you kind of look at it and go, 
that could be me. The family likeness. You see in the royals, as I did a bit of research this week, is, uh, I think this is Beatrice or Eugenie, it's one of the two, uh, and they went back in their family tree and they found her doppelganger from a few centuries ago. There she is, the family likeness. Okay, but Jesus is not saying that we will look like him in our physical appearance. He says the family likeness is that God's family is characterized by love. And John tells us that is because God himself is love. And he flips it around in verse 8. Whoever does not love does not know God. So it's not an optional extra. He's telling us love defines both in the positive and in the negative. If you don't love, regardless of what you say, regardless of what you know, regardless of what else you do, you do not know God, according to John. So we should be looking at this. And we should be saying, I want this. Not so we measure up, but because God himself, God himself is love. I've been talking recently a little bit about our hearts and the way our hearts operate. Our hearts drive our actions because we are driven not by what we know, by by what we love. Our loves, our desires drive our life. Okay? And so you see this in loads of different things. Let me give you a hypothetical. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna pick on the guys here. Okay, you're you're a guy, two girls ask you for a date. Okay? They ask you at the same day for the same time and one is asking you physically as the other one texts you the the invitation. So they come in at exactly the same moment. So you can't say, well, she asked me first. How do you make up your mind as to which one you accept? Do you sit down rationally and go, well, actually, what's in it, you know, for me? Well, hopefully you don't quite do that. But you actually go, well, what, what do I want? Who do I want to spend that time with? That's a question about desire, a question about love. It's the same when you go to the fridge. You open the fridge and there is the cake and there is the carrot. It's a question of love, isn't it? What do you love more? Do you love your beach body that you're anticipating walking down Brighton Beach, you know? You're there? Is that what you love? Okay, you're going to go the carrot every time. Or are you probably like the rest of us? We're not so much hung up on the beach body, but we want the immediate gratification of the cake. Give me the flavor. Give me the rich texture. Give me the silky chocolate flowing down. It's a question of love, isn't it? It is a question of love. Let me give you another example. You're at work. Okay, your husband, your wife is at home and your boss comes in and says, I need you to work late, but you've promised your other half that you'll be at home. 
that you'll look after the kids so they can go out. How do you make that decision? Well, it could be fear. That could be one thing. Who do you fear the most? But I'd like to suggest it's who do you love the most? Do you love your career and the advancement? Do you love what your boss can offer or what your spouse can offer? It's a question of love. Now, the Bible tells us that God himself should be the object of our love. Remember the great commands Jesus talks about? What's the first, the greatest command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. The greatest effort given towards the greatest good. We are called to love God. Not because of what he gives us, but because of who he is. And so when we hear this call to love, we should want it, not because we'll get in trouble if we're not loving, but because this is the best thing. Now, it raises a question for us, though. A question that is a bit thorny. Because here John is tying love to real Christianity in a somewhat exclusive kind of way, isn't he? What's he say? Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Is, is John arguing that if you're not a person who is a follower of Christ, you can't truly love? Well, let's explore this. It's a bit of a confronting question, isn't it? Now, can I suggest that what our society calls love is a poor reflection at best. Okay? Bear with me. Maybe you've just reacted and thought, that's a big claim, Cameron. Well, bear with me. I would like to suggest, and I think Scripture tells us this, that most of what our society will call love, and maybe we ourselves, is actually self-love. I talked before about what's in it for you. But I think we are naturally wired to love in a way that we, maybe not consciously, but unconsciously are processing what's in this for us. We love because we get. You make me feel so fill in the blank, so special, so loved, so attracted, so secure. We love because of what we get in return. And I think our society, this is how we view love. There's been a reaction against the old wedding vows, you know, till death do us part. No, I've heard them rewritten. Till love fades. It's a bit brutal, isn't it? Until I'm no longer getting good kickback. No good return on my investment. I'll go. I'll find someone else who can meet those needs. It's out there, isn't it? It's out there. And I think... We are not immune from this within the church, within God's people. We settle for a poor imitation of what love truly is. 
Christian love, the Bible teaches, is radically distinctive because at the heart is grace. Now, I want to give you a, a definition. And I want you to just work with me on this. That love is this. Love is an orientation, an orientation of our hearts to seek the good of another regardless of the cost to ourselves. Now, is that how you would define love? Do you say, oh baby, I desire, my orientation of my heart is such that I want to seek your good irrespective of the cost to myself. It's probably not the language you use. It doesn't sound very romantic, but think about it. Because I think this is how the Bible sees love. Because love is not about us in the first instance. This is a love, this is a desire, this is an orientation, a commitment of our hearts to seek the good of others regardless of what comes back to us. Our society reduces love to an emotion. The Bible sees love. Yes, there's an emotional part to it, but it is an act of will, an orientation of heart. It is a commitment, not just an emotion. It is something that we choose rather than something that just happens to us. We'll come back to that. But the church, John teaches, is to be a community that is characterized by love. Not our love for each other, not even our love for God, but by his love for us. So let us love one another. We are called to be like the moon. The moon itself is a, is a rock. Isn't it? Dead rock in space. But it reflects the sun's light and we see this amazing thing. It's been a full moon recently. Uh, I don't know if you've walked outside and had a look and just gone, wow. The church is to be like the moon reflecting God's love. Like Matt's little thing, as it comes in through the top, it pours out through the side. Hopefully with not too much leakage. But we'll see. But we'll see. So we are being called to love one another. And remember Jesus' words, as I have loved you. So let's move on to examine love a bit more quickly. So how do we do it? Okay, let me say, first and foremost, love is not our default. This is how God showed his love for us, verse 9. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? You might remember. He said, you must be born again. God sent his son into the world that we might live through him. The Bible teaches that without Christ, we are dead. We are in darkness. We are lost. But God sent Christ to live, to die, to rise, that we might be born again, that we might have, as Jesus promised in John 10, 10, life to the full. Because sin's power is broken and we are reborn. And so our hearts are reoriented around their greatest object of love. 
our relationship with God is restored and we are connected back to him because his spirit lives in us. We are born, reborn to love. And it's also, John teaches us, it's not what we might think. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. John tells us that we don't get to define love. We don't take a poll out in society and ask people, what do you think love is? You can ask that. It's a good question to ask. But at the end of the day, the ultimate authority is God himself. It's kind of like, uh, if, you, uh, if you've ever wondered what a kilogram is, well, there is this groovy little thing in the, in the glass contraption there on the left of your screen. Uh, that is the... It's called the International Prototype Kilogram. You, you now can sleep at night because you now know that is one kilogram officially. So if ever you wondered whether the thing on the, this thing here, the one kilogram here, is actually one kilogram, you go back to the source and you compare it against this, uh, I think it's a, a palladium-iridium alloy. I know you were wondering about that. Okay. Uh, and it's kept in a vacuum The crazy thing is, it's actually gaining weight somehow. We don't really know how, uh, but it is. So the one kilogram is actually weighing more than it did before. So it's not a gold standard. But what is the gold standard for love? The gold standard for love is Christ. This is love, not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. What did we define love as? a orientation, a commitment of heart to seek the good of the other regardless to cost to self. Does the gospel make sense of that definition? That God sought our greatest good by meeting our greatest need. He didn't do it to serve his ends He did it so that he might show his love to others. So if ever we're wondering what love is, don't go to roses and puppies and wedding days. Go to a hill outside Jerusalem in about the 30 AD mark and find there the bleeding, tortured form of the Son of God. That is love. So how do we love? We love because he allows us, he remakes us, he rebirths us to love. We love in the pattern that he gave us in Christ. And we love because he calls us to love. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See the overflow idea that Matt was getting to in the kids' talk? God loved us. It's not that we loved him. He loved us. And since he loved us in this way, so we are to overflow in love to others. It's not the the ought here isn't that we have a debt that we have to pay. But if you've encountered love like that, a love like God's love for us in Christ, if you've met that love, 
it will overflow in your heart. It will overflow in your life. It cannot leave you untouched. There is an inevitable overflow as that love fills us and flows to others. And then John teaches us that that God, that love actually is completed within us. God has a purpose for that love. He tells us in 1 John 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us or perfect in us. If we love others like God loves us, God's love reaches its fulfillment. Have you ever wondered, what, what does it mean to love God? Well, John gives us one key application here. Look around to the people around you. To love God is to love his people. Do you remember Jesus' parable, the sheep and the goats? And Jesus is there and he's talking about visiting people in prison, about feeding the, uh, the, the poor, feeding the hungry, providing for the poor, clothing the naked. And then what did Jesus say at the end? He said, as much as you have done it for the least of these, my brothers and sisters... You have done it to me. So if you want to show love to God, you show love to his people. What about those outside though? Are we to turn away and we just become a little holy huddle and look after ourselves? Well, no, because God doesn't, doesn't do that. Remember John 3.16? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God has an orientation to the lost world, the rebellious world that seeks its good, regardless of the cost to him. He sends Christ to die, to rise again. He loves the world with a redemptive love. And he calls us to do that as well. So, third point. Undergoing a spiritual. Jonathan Edwards said this. He said, if the spirit that is at work amongst a people, if it operates as a spirit of love towards God and people, it is a sure sign that is the spirit of God. So if you feel that God is at work in you and you are loving those around you more, if you are loving him more, you can... You can faithfully say, yes, that is God at work. If we look at our church and we say we are becoming a church that is more welcoming, more loving, more sacrificial, more accepting, more loving, that is God at work. So let me give you some questions just to provoke some thoughts. Love starts with God. So are we ourselves growing in wonder at God's love for us? Do we have that sense, wow, God loves me this much? It's interesting, I was having a conversation with one of our people uh, after a sermon. I think after the first sermon, I'd made the comment about the longer you go on the Christian life, sometimes the more aware you become of your sinfulness, yes? Uh, there's a few people nodding there. It's kind of like 
um, when Jesus comes into your life, he walks into the room and he flicks on the switch, but the dimmer's down really low. And you look, kind of look around, you can see a bit of a mess, and you clean it up a bit more, and then the Holy Spirit just slowly cranks that dimmer. And so every time you kind of think, oh, I've got this under control, you see more, and you see more, and you see more, because what you see in the brightness of his holiness, and as you see more of his holiness, you will see more of your sin. And if you see more of your sin, and you are truly his, you will see more of his love because you will know that that sin has been forgiven in Christ. So do we see, are we growing in that sense of the debt that we owed is so much bigger than what we thought, but the love that he has showed us that has paid it completely is so much more than we could possibly imagine. Do we have that growing wonder? Because that is the source of the river of love for one another. If we are not being filled from on high, we will not be able to fill the lives of others. Do we say, as John said, wow, God loves me this much that I can be his child? Do we have a growing concern for the good of others? Do we look around? Do we see the person who seems a little isolated? And we think, oh, I should go talk to them. We hear about the person who's been hit by a car and fallen off and broken a scapula and think, I should be praying about her. I should give her a ring. I should ask. Sorry, Julie, for picking on you, but you're just standing in my line of sight. Do we hear about a need and think, what can I do to meet that? Does the person move in next door and you think, I'd love to get to know that person. Do you see the person at work who everyone else finds really, really, really annoying and you go the extra mile to make friends with that person? Maybe you're their boss and you work with them and you give them more effort and more attention because they're the one that struggles. It'd be easy just to cast them aside, to marginalise them, to move them on. But you seek their good. Do we have a growing concern for the good of others? When you walked in here this morning, what was going through your head? What was going through your heart? Did you walk in and say, I'd love it if this was the case and I'd try and work in my own heart. Who can I bless this morning? Because that's, that's God's love at work. And it's not just your best friend. And it's not just the people you feel comfortable with. Do we have a growing concern for the good of others? Do we have a growing willingness to sacrifice for others? Our time, our money, our energy, our focus. Are we prepared to pour ourselves out that others might be filled? Do we have a growing willingness to sacrifice for others? We are called to carry one another's burdens. Sometimes I kind of think, and I think of this of myself, I can carry it enough so I don't really feel burdened myself, but I really don't want to take much more on. 
But are we prepared to burden ourselves that others might be less burdened? Are we prepared to take on the weight with the strength that God provides, not in our own strength, but in his? Are we prepared to burden ourselves that others may be less encumbered? Do we seek others good regardless of what comes back to us? And lastly, do we have a growing sense of unity and belonging with people who are different? You know, we are most comfortable with those who are like us. Our society at the moment is fragmenting along so many different lines. Race is the big one at the moment. Okay, go back not far. Gender. Go back a little bit further than that. Sexuality, go back a little bit further than that. Socioeconomics and class. We, we are designed, I think, to find reasons to divide against each other. Do you sit around, talk around, invite in those who are like you? Same age as you, same interests as you, same colour as you. Same educational level as you. How do you go with people who are different? People who you are less comfortable with. Think about the holy God incarnate amongst a sinful world. Though the world was made through him, John teaches us, the world did not know him. It's not a decision for comfort that Jesus made. And as he has loved us, so we love others. Do we look around and see those in the church that we don't know? And we think, they're my brothers and sisters. What an opportunity to get to know them. Or do we kind of think, oh, I'm kind of comfortable here. Kind of comfy with these people, my people. Do we have a growing sense of unity and belonging with people who are different? When we walk out of here and we see people who are even more different, do we see a common humanity and a common need for the grace and love of God rather than all the reasons why they're different and we don't need to have a relationship with them? Here's a few things you might think about. They're probably getting fairly similar because each time I come to the prescriptions of grace, what do I tell you to do? I tell you to go back to the cross. If we are going to love, we must know God's love for us. So you must return again and again and again. Our first R, return to God's gracious love for you. Go back to the cross again and again and again. That should be a landmark for our lives, for our hearts. We go back to love's gold standard and see how God has loved us. And we live there. And as we do that, we then rejoice because God did this for me. He did this for you. We bathe our hearts in his love, we rejoice, we repent.
we recognize our self-focus, our poor imitation of love, the fact that we love those who are like us. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we stop there. We love those who give back to us. And there's nothing wrong with getting back. But we look for that. And we exclude if we don't. There are limits if we don't. We need to repent. And then we need to reflect. Like the moon with the sun's light. As we absorb the love that God has for us in Christ, as we rest our hearts in his grace, we then reflect that to others. As he has loved us, brothers and sisters, let us love one another. By this then, all people will know that you are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to spend some time now just in quiet reflection and then Lauren is going to lead us uh, in a time of confession uh, and then we're going to have some time of prayer. So I'll just leave the four questions up there uh, for your pondering.